ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So we're on the chapter regarding the ghusl and the rulings connected to that and the different types of ghusl that there are. And we had now got to the section where it was going to talk about the ghusl on Fridays. What is the ruling regarding the ghusl for Fridays? Here we have the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال غسل الجمعة واجب على كل محتلم In this hadith the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said the غسل of Friday is obligatory upon every muhtalim, meaning every uh, adult or every person beyond the age of puberty. Then we have the hadith of Samurah ibn Jundub, radiyallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, man tawadda'a, يوم الجمعة فبها ونعمة ومن اغتسل فالغسل أفضل In this hadith the hadith of Samurah ibn Jundub the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said whoever makes wudu on the Friday meaning for the Jumu'ah prayer whoever makes the wudu then that is good and enough. And whoever wants to make ghusl, that is better. So the first hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu was telling us that the ghusl of Friday is wajib, obligatory upon you all, upon those whom the responsibility is on from the age of puberty onwards. Obligatory. But the second hadith of Samurah ibn Jundub, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, wudu is enough. And whoever wishes to make ghusl though, that's a preference and better, but not that it's obligatory. So now, you have these two narrations that seem to be indicating different rulings. One of them seems to be indicating the ruling that ghusl on a Friday is obligatory. The other one seems to be indicating only wudu is enough. And if you wish to make ghusl as an option, you can do that and it's better. But it's not obligatory. So now then, in this situation, what is going to be the ruling regarding the ghusl on a Friday? 
Here the scholars, they have different opinions, obviously, because you can see there are narrations that seem to indicate different positions. The first opinion of the scholars, there are three main opinions. Three main opinions about the ghusl on a Friday. The first opinion is wajib. Just like the first hadith clearly indicated it is wajib, obligatory. You have to make the ghusl on the Friday. According to that first hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. The second opinion is therefore going to be that it's only mustahab. It is only something recommended, but not necessarily obligatory. And that is going to be based upon the second hadith of Samura, where the Prophet said, wudu is enough, but if you choose to make ghusl, that is better. That indicates that making ghusl is recommended. It is mustahab, but not that it is wajib. And, uh, and the third opinion, التفصيل, that there is more of a detailed breakdown regarding the ruling. It's not as simple as obligatory or not obligatory. There is something more detailed to take into consideration, they say. What is that? وَهُوَ أَنَّ مَنْ كَانَ فِيهِ رَوَائِحْ كَرِيهَا وَعِرْقْ وَنَحْوِ ذَلِكْ فَإِنَّهُ يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَغْتَسِلَ مِنْ أَجْلِ إِزَالَةِ هَذِهِ الْأَشْيَاءِ لِكَيْ لَا يَتَأَذَّى بِهَا النَّاسِ الَّذِينَ يَحْضُرُونَ مَعَهُ صَلَاةُ الْجُمْعَةِ أَمَّا مَنْ كَانَ نَظِيفًا وَلَيْسَتْ فِيهِ هَذِهِ الْأَشْيَاءِ الْمُؤْذِيَةِ the third opinion they say that it depends on the state of the person. If the person is in a state that is not upon cleanliness and perhaps there are smells that are not befitting from that person, Maybe he's been exercising, maybe he's been jogging and he's sweating. So now he's not in a good state. And there are smells from him. And there is some degree of uncleanliness from him. They say, if that's your state on a Friday, then it is wajib you have to do the ghusl for the Friday. But they say, if you are clean and pure and nothing upon you, you're in a clean and good and fragrant state, then it is only mustahab for you to do the ghusl on the Friday. So they say it depends on the state of the person. And this third opinion is actually the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, where he says it is about the state of a person. If your state requires ghusl then it's obligatory upon you to do ghusl for the friday if your state does not require ghusl then it is not upon you to have to do the ghusl on the friday فهذا اختيار شيخ الاسلام ابن تيميه رحمه الله تعالى 
وذكره ابن القيم في زاد المعاد وهذا الرأي فيه جمع بين الحديثين and upon this third opinion there is a manner of combining between those two narrations وَهُوَ تَوْجِيهٌ جَيِّدٌ and it is a good manner and method of clarifying how those two narrations can be understood together حَيْثُ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا فِي أَوَّلِ الْإِسْلَامِ يَلْبَسُونَ الصُّوفِ وَالْخَشِنْ مِنَ الثِّيَابِ وَذَلِكَ لِضِيقِ مَعَايِشِهِمْ ثم إنهم بعد ذلك يعملون فتظهر منه رائحة العرق وغير ذلك ثم إنهم يحضرون صلاة الجمعة فيتأذى غيرهم من رائحتهم فلذا أمرهم النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بالاغتسال It's mentioned by these scholars who give this explanation about your state They say particularly when you look at the early days of Islam At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, in the early days, many of the Muslims were in poverty. And the types of clothes that they used to wear were a bit like what we might call like the rags. Like you, you've probably seen the uh, uh, types of depiction they give you of the medieval times. Those big cotton rags and things that they used to wear. And you can imagine if you get hot and sweaty in those that they used to wear these types of garments and of certain types of wool and certain types of the thick cotton and those types of garments then especially if you have to go out and do physical work and labor as they used to and the physical work and labor begins after Fajr Jumu'ah is in the middle of the day perhaps three, four, five, six hours of work they might have done before Jumu'ah out in the fields and doing other physical things so it was befitting at that time to to look at the state of a person if your state is such that you're in a bad way with your smell and sweat and other things then it's obligatory upon you to do ghusl before you come but if you're not in that state you haven't been working that day or you're in a good and clean state generally that day then it is not an obligation upon you so the hadith that said it is obligatory would be upon the understanding of the one whose state requires for it to be obligatory for him and the hadith that said wudu is enough but if you choose to make ghusl that is better for the person who actually is in a good state so wudu is enough but if he chooses anyway to make ghusl then that is better so the third opinion shaykh al-islam and ibn al-qayyim mentioned it it goes back to the state of a person on the friday so three opinions altogether. one opinion saying to you it's got nothing to do with your state it is obligatory upon everyone to do the ghusl the second opinion tells you doesn't matter about your state regardless it is only mustahab for everyone to do the ghusl on the friday uh, and this second opinion the second opinion that it's mustahab the ruling 
of the religion is that it is mustahab. This second opinion is actually the opinion of the majority of the scholars. The Jumhuru Ahl al-Ilm. They say that it is mustahab to do the ghusl on a Friday. وَهُوَ قَوْلُ جُمْهُورِ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ حَيْثُ إِنَّهُمْ جَعَلُوا حَدِيثَ سَمُرَةِ مُفَسِّرًا لِحَدِيثِ أَبِي سَعِيدِ وَحَدِيثِ أَبِي سَعِيدِ مُؤَكِّدًا لِحَدِيثِ سَمُرَةِ وَلَيْسَ مِنْ بَابِ الْوُجُوبِ كَأَنْ تَقُولَ لِصَدِيقِكَ زِيَارَتُكَ حَقٌّ وَاجِبٌ عَلَيَّ so they say that the two hadith, the hadith of Abu Sa'id, which indicates the obligation, it is only phrased in that way to really just indicate that it's a high-level recommendation, not an actual obligation. And they give an example, if you say to your friend, uh, Sheikh Al-Fawzani mentions an example If you were to say to your friend I've got to come and visit you I haven't seen you in so long 100% I am going to come and visit you It is an absolute right upon me That I have to come and visit you Obligatory People speak like that But then you might not see that person For another two years mashallah the point is, that doesn't mean when a person makes that kind of statement, it is now some type of obligation, that if he doesn't do it, he now becomes a sinner. But what he means by that statement, and what people mean by that is, if they are genuine, is that they do, inshallah, want to come and visit you at some point. It has been a while. But it doesn't mean it's an obligation, wajib upon me within seven days, otherwise I'm a sinner. So this is a type of statement used to emphasize things, but not necessarily indicate an absolute obligation. Just like when your friend says, I'm going to visit you, absolutely I have to. But then you don't see him for two months or three months until he finally does. Because the understanding wasn't that it's an obligation in a certain time of got to come, otherwise I'm a sinner. The purpose of that was to highlight that he really does want to come and he is going to come at some time. So it is a strongly emphasized statement, not necessarily a statement of obligation. So that is what they mentioned. And so you can see that the third opinion here is the opinion of Shaykh al Islam with that explanation. But the majority opinion of the scholars is that it is mustahab, meaning upon that opinion, even if you were in a slightly run-down state on a Friday, then technically, Islamically, you would not be classed as an outright sinner to go to the mosque in that state. But you do have to bear in mind there are multiple other etiquettes in Islam that come into play. If you're in that state, you've gone for a jog in the morning, you've been doing exercise and you're sweating. You wouldn't come into the mosque with that same garment on that you were running in and sweating in and come and sit in the Jum'ah. There are multiple other etiquettes. Purely the etiquette of coming to the mosque upon your beautification and adornment as the Quran says. So there would be multiple other etiquettes preventing you from coming to the mosque in that state. So nobody should think that upon the second opinion, it's mustahab in all conditions, that therefore 
You're in a rundown state. You can come to the mosque in that rundown state. You wouldn't do that from the etiquettes of Islam. But if, let's say now, a person was stuck, and sometimes people can be stuck. Like, for example, if you go to the haram, and there are construction workers in the heat, and they're building, and they're doing other things, and then the time for their prayer comes. They cannot go and shower and change and, every, and then come and join the... They're going to come and join the row as they are. So, technically then, Islamically permissible. But where you are able to avoid that from the etiquette of Islam, obviously you would avoid that. And you would not come in a poor state to the masjid. وَيَبْقَى هُنَاكَ سُؤَالًا يَتَعَلَّقَانِ بِغُصْلِ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ But there are two issues left. Now we have discussed the issue of the ruling of the ghusl on a Friday. Obligatory, optional, recommended, or depending on your state. Three opinions. Now two other issues are left. One of them is, when on the Friday are you supposed to make the ghusl? The narrations that we covered so far, did they specify a time as to when you are supposed to have this ghusl on a Friday? None of them did. So they are open narrations. The ghusl could be early in the morning after fajr. It could be in the middle of the day at some point. It could be at the end of the day. And you could argue you have implemented the narrations. However, الراجح بأن الاغتسال يكون عند الذهاب لصلاة الجمعة. The correct understanding here is the preponderant opinion, as they say, the heaviest opinion, the, the weightiest opinion, is that this ghusl is supposed to be prior to your departure to the Jum'ah prayer. Prior to your departure to the Jum'ah prayer. لِأَنَّهُ يَتَحَقَّقُ بِذَلِكَ الْمَقْصُودِ مِنَ الْإِغْتِسَالِ because then the objective and the point of the ghusl is in fruition. Because if you do the ghusl after Jum'ah prayer, because you were in a slightly poor state, then you've gone and prayed Jum'ah in your poor state, then you're going to do ghusl afterwards. The point is no longer really there. The point is supposed to be that you attend the Jum'ah prayer in that beautified and adorned state of cleanliness and good fragrance. So the point for the point to be actualized, then this ghusl would need to be prior to the Jum'ah prayer. 
والتجمل والتهيؤ لحضور هذا الجمع الجمع العظيم so it is to prepare yourself and be upon cleanliness and adornment to attend this large gathering the Jumu'ah gathering لا سيما وأنه ورد في الحديث ما يشير إلى ذلك and there are narrations that specifically seem to indicate that too وهو قوله صلى الله عليه وسلم في البخاري ومسلم إذا جاء أحدكم الجمعة فليغتسل that when one of you comes to Jumu'ah then make the ghusl فليغتسل this is actually لام الأمر indicating do the ghusl before you come to the Jumu'ah prayer فالاغتسال عند الذهاب لصلاة الجمعة آكت لأنه يحصل به المقصود وإن كان الحديث يحتمل أنه في سائر اليوم the hadith yes they are open and they don't specify when the ghusl of Jumu'ah is supposed to be they simply seem to indicate that it is a sunnah to have a ghusl anytime on the day of Friday every week but what is understood to implement the point of that ghusl is that it should be done before the Jumu'ah prayer and that is the most emphasized time that it should be performed. وَلِهَذَا يَقُولُ الْفُقَهَا لَمَّا تَكَلَّمُوا عَلَى الْاغْتِسَالِ يَوْمَ الْجُمْعَةِ قَالُوا عِنْدَ الذَّهَابِ إِلَى الصَّلَةِ وَعَنْ جِمَاعٍ أَفْضَلْ حَيْثُ إِنَّهُ يَكُونُ أَغَضُّ لِلْبَصَرِ إِضَافَةً إِلَى نَظَافَةِ الْجِسْمِ فَبِذَلِكَ تَجْتَمِعُ خَصْلَتَانِ so that's why the fuqaha, when they spoke about this particular topic of the ghusl on a Friday, they say that it is a preference that it be done just prior to your departure to the prayer and after intimacy may have occurred. Because then it is also a means a greater means to the lowering of the eyesight as well as the cleanliness of the body when you then approach and attend the Jumu'ah prayer the second issue then that's the first then when should it be done it should be done prior to the Jumu'ah prayer غسل الجمعة واجب على كل محتلم مع قوله من توضأ يوم الجمعة فبها فبها ونعمة ومن اغتسل فالغسل أفضل هل يشمل ذلك النساء أو لا The second issue here is all these rulings about the غسل on a Friday the three opinions and about the timing of when it should be done this whole discussion is it relevant only to the men on a friday or do all of these rulings apply to the women also is the ghusl on a friday for the men only or is it applicable to the women too al-jawab annahu la yashmal and Nisa that this all of these rulings they do not include the women 
the rulings of the ghusl on the Friday and the istihbab of the ghusl on the Friday, these rulings do not include the women. لأنه قال واجب على كل محتلم because in the hadith it says it is obligatory upon every محتلم meaning every uh, male that has the wet dream وهذا اللفظ خاص بالرجال فهم الذين تجب في حقهم صلاة الجمعة and also because the Jumu'ah prayer is only obligatory upon the men. And that other narration had said, when you come to the Jumu'ah prayer, then do the ghusl. The women don't even need to go to the Jumu'ah prayer. And so these narrations and these wordings seem to indicate that the rulings here are specifically about the men. Allahumma illa in aradatil mar'ah. أن تذهب لصلاة الجمعة فهذه لا مانع من أن تغتسل وأما الجواب عن السؤال نعم If a woman though is going to attend the Jumu'ah prayer in the mosque If a woman is going to attend the Jumu'ah prayer in the mosque Then these rulings are okay for her too She should then also make the ghusl prior to coming to the Jumu'ah prayer. But if she is not going to attend the Jumu'ah prayer, then these rulings are not necessarily applicable upon her, that she needs to make a ghusl on the Friday anyway. فَيُؤْخَذُ إِذًا مِنْ هَذَيْنِ الْحَدِيثَيْنِ مَسَائِلِ So what are the, the rulings that we can deduce from these two narrations? الْمَسْأَلَةُ الْأُولَى the great virtue of the day of Friday. The Prophet legislated that the ghusl should be done on a Friday, and that therefore indicates the virtue of the day of Friday. If the ghusl is being recommended upon you to do on that day, shows the greatness of that day. فَقَدْ قَالَ فِيهِ النَّبِيُّ صلى الله عليه وسلم مَا طَلَعَتِ الشَّمْسُ وَلَا غَرَبَتْ عَلَى يَوْمٍ أَخْضَلَ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ In another narration, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said that the sun has not arisen, nor has it set upon a day greater than the Friday. There is no other day greater than the day of Friday that the sun comes up and goes down upon. فَيَوْمُ الْجُمْعَةِ فِيهِ أَسْرَارٌ عَظِيمَةِ فِيهِ خُلِقَ آدَمُ وَفِيهِ أُدْخِلَ الْجَنَّةِ وَفِيهِ أُهْبِطَ مِنْهَا وَفِيهِ تَقُومُ السَّاعَةِ وَفِيهِ سَاعَةِ وَسَاعَةُ إِجَابَةِ لَا يُوَافِقُهَا عَبْدٌ مُسْلِمٌ يَسْأَلُ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا إِلَّا أَعْطَاهُ إِيَّاهُ So the Friday is a tremendous and great day. It is the day that Allah created Adam عليه السلام in. It is also the day that Allah put Adam into paradise. 
And it is also the day that Adam salam was exited from the paradise. And of course there is a difference of opinion as to whether Adam salam was initially in the paradise that all of the believers are going to go to then. The paradise that is spoken about, was he in that actual paradise? Or was it a different paradise? And there are discussions about that. But he was entered into a paradise and removed from it. On a Friday, both of those events happened. And it will be on a Friday when the day of judgment occurs. It will be a Friday also when the day of judgment occurs. And on the Fridays, there is a time period, a time period where the dua is accepted. And the narrations, they say sa'ah, but sa'ah does not mean 60 minutes. Does not necessarily mean one hour. Sa'ah in Arabic can mean a period of time. So there is a period of time on the Friday where the dua, it is answered. So all of those things, they highlight to you the great virtues of the day of Friday. وَقَدْ ذَكَرَ ابْنُ الْقَيِّمِ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned in one of his books called Zad al-Ma'ad, the provisions of the hereafter. The provisions, what you need to get together for the afterlife. Zad al-Ma'ad. He said in that book, لِيَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ ثَلَاثًا وَثَلَاثِينَ خَصِيصًا That the Friday has 33 specific things about it. That the other six days of the week don't have. Friday has 33 specific things about it. And some of the scholars even wrote books about the virtues of the Friday. The virtues of Friday. الذي ألف رسالة في فضائل يوم الجمعة اسمها اللمعة في فضائل يوم الجمعة So one of them is Al-Hafid Al-Suyuti who wrote a small book regarding the virtues of the Friday which was entitled اللمعة في فضائل يوم الجمعة The title of that particular book regarding the virtues of the day of Friday المسألة الثانية في الحديثين مشروعية لاغتسال يوم الجمعة يوم الجمعة على خلاف في وجوبه واستحبابه The two narrations they highlight to us that it is legislated to do the ghusl on a Friday Legislated As to whether it is legislated as an obligation or as something recommended that discussion we've had but the point is obligation or recommended it is at the end of the day legislated to have a ghusl on the fridays that this ruling, it is specific to the men. Because the wording of the narration, Muhtalim, indicates the male that has a wet dream. 
that indicates the males uh, and so these rulings are specific to the men regarding the ghusl on the Friday except if a woman is going to attend the Jumu'ah in congregation then she can also apply these Al-Mas'alatu Al-Rabi'ah Fi al-Hadithi Dalilun Ala anna al-Nadhafa Wa izalata al-Rawaih Al-Kariha Matlooba Shara'an Lil-Muslimi Khususan Indama yahdur Al-Ijtima'at Al-Diniyya Kayawm al-Jum'ah Wa yawm al-Eid Wa salat al-Jama'ah Fi al-Salawat al-Khams That these narrations Highlight to us that cleanliness and the removal of odors from yourselves is something Islamically required of the believer. To be upon cleanliness and to remove odors from yourself, that is something that is required of the believer from the etiquettes of Islam, especially when you are going to attend the gatherings for example, the gathering of Jum'ah or the gathering of the day of Eid or the normal gatherings of the congregational prayer. It is from the etiquette that a believer comes in a good state for those gatherings. And not just those gatherings, but even these gatherings of knowledge. It is from the etiquettes that a believer comes to the gatherings of knowledge to the circles of knowledge with adornment and good uh, 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 cleanliness and fragrance etc for the men in the fragrance that is from the etiquette and the evidence for that is a clear evidence that the scholars they use to say that it is from the etiquettes of Islam that when you come to the gatherings of knowledge you come in a good state clean clothes groomed well, fragrance of goodness from the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam because when Jibreel alayhi salam he came to the gathering of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he said, the narrator said إِذْ طَلَعَ عَلَيْنَا رَجُلٌ شَدِيدُ بَيَاضِ الثِّيَابِ شَدِيدُ سَوَادِ الشَّعْرِ لَا يُرَى عَلَيْهِ أَثَرُ السَّفَرِ that a man came to the gathering of the messenger with extremely white clothes, meaning clean clothes, and extremely black hair, meaning that there was no dirt and it wasn't disheveled, it was cleaned and groomed as we say. And there were no signs of journeying upon him, the hadith says. There was no dust or dirt upon him. He came in a clean state to sit in the gathering of the Prophet and so the scholars they say this is one of the etiquettes of the gatherings of knowledge that you come in that good and clean state then after that عن علي رضي الله عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقرئون القرآن مَا لَمْ يَكُنْ جُنُوبًا رواه الخمسة وهذا لفظ الترمذي وحسنه وصححه ابن حبان In this hadith now then 
Ali radiallahu anhu, he mentions that the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, used to recite or make us recite the Quran as long as he was not upon a state of janabah. Meaning as long as he was not upon a state of the major sexual impurity, otherwise he would be engaged with the Qur'an and the recitation and us reciting. He would be engaged in all of that activity with the Qur'an as long as he was not in the state of the sexual impurity. يَعْنِي يَتَلُوهُ عَلَيْنَا وَيُعَلِّمُنَا إِيَّاهُ كَمَا يُعَلِّمُنَا السُنَّةِ so here in specific that the messenger used to recite it to us and teach it to us. The Quran, he used to recite the Quran to us and teach us the Quran as long as he was not in that state of sexual impurity. فَالصُّحَابَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ كانوا يتلقون العلم عن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم كتابا وسنة وهذا يدل على فضلهم وشرفهم بأنهم تلاميذ الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم ويدل على أن العلم يجب أن يتلقى عن العلماء. So this shows to you that the companions they used to seek knowledge directly from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. They used to learn the Qur'an and the Sunnah from him. This narration telling us they used to learn the Qur'an directly from the Prophet ﷺ. And those chains of narration, the Isnad, it exists to this day. To this day you have people, I think maybe around about 25 or 26 people in the chain of narration going back to the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an. Meaning that you will have somebody now, there used to be a Shaykh Ubaidullah al-Afghani in the Haram al-Madani. He used to teach and he had a chain of narration up to the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an. Meaning that you were taught by somebody who was 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 taught by the Prophet ﷺ, direct chain of narration. 25 or 26 men in between and there are people who have those now so the companions they learnt the Quran directly from the Prophet and so this indicates their virtue and their honor and their nobility that they were students of the Prophet and it also indicates and notice when you read the books of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan, how often he highlights this point. It indicates the obligation of acquiring knowledge from the ulama. The obligation of acquiring knowledge, of taking knowledge from the ulama. The companions... In fact, when you look at the hadith, the hadith and the, the uh, isnad, the asanid, sometimes a companion heard a hadith directly from the Prophet 
and maybe some other companion didn't happen to be in that gathering so he never heard that particular hadith directly from the prophet he wasn't in that gathering instead the companions who were in that gathering may have told him afterwards so now this other companion knows the hadith that the prophet has mentioned but he knows it via this other companion who told him because he wasn't there himself the companions when they knew hadith like that via another companion to the messenger they would not be happy until they would go to the messenger and get that hadith directly themselves not because there was any issue on the trustworthiness of the companions not at all there is no question on the trustworthiness of the companions they are all thiqat udul and that's why in the books of hadith sometimes the masakin students who do their thesis sometimes they say uh, uh, the chain of narration fulan fulan thiqa fulan fulan saduq fulan and they get to the sahabi sahabi anas ibn malik thiqa mashallah that's a mistake you don't say the companion thiqa the companions by default if you see somebody say, going through the chain of narration and he gets to the companion and he says it shows to you that this person hasn't studied the sciences of hadith the companions are thiqat, trustworthy so it wasn't because of that issue it was because of the issue of they wanted to hear the hadith directly from the source of the prophet because the closer you get to the source, the more honorable it is. The more dignity there is in that. And this happened in the next generation too. If there was a tabi'i, a student of one of the companions who heard a hadith from his sheikh, the companion, who had heard from another companion to the messenger, then the tabi'i would want to go and get it from the other companion so that then he would have instead of him to the companion to the companion to the messenger he would have it as him to the companion to the prophet so they used to strive for that why did we speak about this i don't know where we were but uh uh The hadith of Ali that the Shaykh said it is obligatory to acquire knowledge from the scholars. And as they say, the Aslul Ilm is Asama'a. The origin of knowledge is not reading a book, the origin of knowledge is not your eyes, the origin of knowledge is your ears, they say. That is the default of how you gain knowledge. You go and sit with the scholars and you listen to them. And you listen to that knowledge. And thereafter, of course, the eyes and the hands and the writing. But the asal, they say, is a samar. That you hear that knowledge directly from the scholars and why not? Of course, that would be the case. 
The scholars, they are warathatul anbiya, the inheritors of the prophets. When the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Anbiya lam yuwarrithu dirhaman wala dinara innama warrathul ilm. That the prophets, they did not bequeath, they didn't give inheritance with money. They gave their knowledge, they left behind their knowledge. And so the ones who take that knowledge, they have taken a good portion of it. And the scholars are the warathatul anbiya. They are the ones that you return back to. They are the ones who are inheritors of the prophets. Hence, the obligation or the importance of seeking knowledge from them. In the olden days at the time of the Salaf, they would seek knowledge in their land from the most knowledgeable scholar first. They would try to go to the most knowledgeable of the scholars. Then they would go and travel out and find the most knowledgeable of the scholars again. To go to the most senior in their knowledge, in their ability, understanding. And that is the way of the Salaf. The way of the Salaf was to go to the sources of knowledge. So here then it mentions that the messenger used to teach them the Quran in all circumstances except if he was upon the impurity, the major impurity. So if he was upon the major impurity, then he would not teach the Quran and recite the Quran. The hadith therefore indicates that somebody upon the sexual impurity should not recite Quran until they have done their ghusl. Just like other things are prohibited for the one who is upon the major impurity, for example, sitting in the mosque, that you're not supposed to come and stay in the mosque and sit in the mosque when you're upon that state of major impurity. لِقَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَقْرَبُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَأَنْتُمْ سُكَارًا حَتَّى تَعْلَمُوا مَا تَقُولُونَ وَلَا جُنُوبًا إِلَّا عَابِرِي سَبِيلٍ حَتَّى تَغْتَسِلُوا That all you who believe do not approach the prayer whilst you are intoxicated until you know what you are saying and neither the one who is upon the major sexual impurity except for the one simply passing by until you otherwise make ghusl. So these uh, rulings are taken directly from the Qur'an. هَذَا فِيهِ أَنَّهِ عَنِ اللُّبْثِ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ لِلْجُنُبِ وَجَوَازِ الْمُرُورِ لَهُ لِأَخْذِ حَاجَةِ This indicates that it is impermissible for somebody upon the major sexual impurity to come and sit in the mosque. But that it is permissible for him to pass by or pass through the mosque. Now imagine now, somebody left something in the mosque yesterday and they are upon major impurity but they need to get that item you're allowed to just pick up the item and get out 
allowed to pick up the item and exit, but not allowed to remain in the mosque and you are still in the state of needing a ghusl. وَكَذَلِكَ لَا يَمَسْ الْمُصْحَفِ مِنْ بَابِ أَوْلَى وَلِقَوْلِهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ لَا يَمَسْ الْمُصْحَفِ إِلَّا طَاهِرٌ And also, if you're not supposed to be reciting the Qur'an when you're in a state of major impurity, then it is even more understandable that you're not supposed to actually touch the Mus'haf when you're in a state of major sexual impurity. And that is going to come up in detail yet as well. فَدَلَّ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ عَلَى مَسَائِلِ So there are certain issues that we can understand from this narration. الْأُولَى فَضْلُ الصَّحَابَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ حَيْثُ إِنَّهُمْ يَتَلَقَّوْنَ الْعِلْمَ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُ الْقُرْآنِ وَالسُنَّةِ Firstly, the great virtue of the companions, whereby they gained their knowledge directly from the Prophet ﷺ. And they used to learn from him the Qur'an, and they used to learn from him the Sunnah. Al-Mas'alatu al-Thaniyah Fihi anna man alayhi hadathun asghar يجوز له أن يقرأ القرآن وأن يدرسه عن ظهر قلب من غير أن يمسه لأن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ما كان يمنعه من قراءة القرآن إلا الجنابة The hadith also indicates that if you are upon minor impurity meaning you've broken your wudu you've done something one of the nullifiers of the wudu You've broken your wudu, that's all. You're not upon any janaba, impurity, sexual impurity, nothing. You've just broken your wudu. In that state where your wudu has broken, you are not upon wudu, you are allowed to carry on reciting the Qur'an and studying and, and revising and memorizing, but without physically touching the mushaf according to many of the scholars. And that is some difference, but... According to many of them, you do not touch the mushaf if you're not upon wudu. And we touched upon that topic a while ago. But otherwise, reciting and revising and memorizing, you can do all of that even if you don't have wudu. Then the final hadith in this section. وَعَنَ بِسَعِيدِ الْخُدْرِ رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا أتى أحدكم أهله ثم أراد أن يعود فليتوضأ بينهما وضوءا رواه مسلم زاد الحاكم فإنه أنشط للعود This hadith says that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said when one of you has intercourse with his family, with the wife, and then you intend to have intercourse again, meaning immediately afterwards, or, or very soon afterwards, before you've gone and made ghusl or anything, that you wish to do that again. Then if that is the case, the hadith says, in between, before 
returning to doing that again, you should go and make wudu. That you should make the wudu in between. And in one version it says, because that brings about a greater degree of energy. A greater degree of energy and activity for the individual that you make wudu first before then returning to have the intercourse once again. هذا أيضا من أحكام الجنب وهو أنه من كان عليه جنابه ثم أراد أن يجامع أهله مرة ثانية فإنه يستحب له يتوضأ ولا يكرر الجماع بدون وضوء. So this is one of the rulings of being upon the major impurity that if you are upon the major sexual impurity and then you intend to have sexual intercourse again after that then you should at least in between make wudu. It is not an obligation to make the ghusl and purify, then come to have the relations again, but you should make wudu at least before returning for the relations once again. وَفِي رِوَايَةِ الْحَاكِمِ بَيَانُ الْحِكْمَةِ مِنْ ذَلِكَ And in the version of Al-Hakim, it tells you the wisdom behind that, that it brings about a greater level of energy and... Uh, 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 activity from that individual. وهذه فائدة صحية أرشدنا إليها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. So this is a type of health benefit that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم directed us to that you should make the wudu and freshen yourself in that way before having the relations again. Then the final narration in fact عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ينام وهو جنب من غير أن يمس ماء There is this hadith but some of the scholars they say it is معلول that it has a problem in it in terms of weakness but the narration says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would go to sleep go to sleep for the night whilst he was upon the major sexual impurity. Meaning somebody has intercourse, and then you go to sleep without making the ghusl, make the ghusl in the morning before fajr. The hadith indicates it's permissible to go to sleep whilst in a state of major sexual impurity. هذا أيضا من أحكام الجنب وظاهره أنه لا يمس ماء لا للغسل ولا the narration says that the messenger would go to sleep upon the state of major sexual impurity without touching water. Without touching water, meaning therefore without having made ghusl or wudu, just going to sleep upon that state of the major sexual impurity. Lakin as-sahih. أنه لا يمس ماء للغسل فقط جمعا بين الحديث الأخرى أنه صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يتوضأ قبل أن ينام إذا كان جنوبا There are other narrations though that do say that the messenger if he was upon the major impurity would at least make wudu before going to sleep غسل wasn't an obligation but he would make wudu so now then, to combine between those narrations, the correct position would be that 
at least in that state you should make wudu to go to sleep and you can make the ghusl in the morning before fajr at least you should make wudu when going to sleep fadalla hadha alhadith ala annahu yajuzu liljunub an yanama wa alayhi aljanaba illa annahu yustahabbu lahu an yatawadda wa in ightasala qabla an yanam fa huwa afdal وعليه فإن الحالات التي يفعلها الجنب ثلاثة. So the hadith indicates that it is permissible for somebody upon the sexual impurity to go to sleep, uh, uh, and that it is only mustahab for him to make wudu before going to sleep. If he made the full ghusl, that is even better, but it is mustahab that he should make wudu at least. Therefore, there are three circumstances here. Three circumstances here. Firstly, and the best circumstance, is that you should just go and make ghusl before going to sleep. That is the best uh, circumstance, the best thing you can do. And yaghtasila wa yanam ala taharatin tamma. That you make the ghusl and go to sleep upon complete purity. Walhala athaniya, the second circumstance. أن ينام من غير أن يمسما أن أصلا لا للوضوء ولا للاغتسال وهذا جائز لا إثم فيه. That you go to sleep without making ghusl and even without making wudu. That is permissible. You cannot say it is a sin if you do that. It is permissible. والحالة الثالثة and the third circumstance is that you don't make ghusl but you do make wudu. That is the third. Uh, because making wudu, at least then it reduces the level of your state of impurity. Uh, so the best circumstance after sexual intercourse is to make the ghusl before going to sleep. The second best then is to make wudu at least before going to sleep. And the minimum which is allowed is that you don't do anything. You can just go to sleep without wudu, without ghusl. It is permissible, but it is the lowest of the states for that person. That is perhaps where we will conclude for today. Inshallah ta'ala will pick up from the section following on from this next time. Uh, which is going to be an explanation of how you actually make ghusl. What is the description Islamically of how you're supposed to make the ghusl? That is going to be in the next section, inshallah ta'ala, explaining where you pour the water first, which side you pour the water first, uh, about the fingers that are used, various descriptions of how you are supposed to make the actual ghusl. That is what we'll begin with next time, which will be in four weeks. This class is only once a month now. So in four weeks' time, inshallah ta'ala, we'll come back and continue with that section. Any questions or anything up to there?
This indicates that it appears to be for the man. That's what it seems to indicate. But you know, these kind of issues, but it appears to be that it is only for the man that this is, uh, because the, the nishat, it appears, is needed from the man. So, Allah alam. Hmm. So a person who misses the prayer on purpose, missing the prayer, not praying, there are two circumstances. A person abandons the prayer, juhudan, uh, that he rejects the obligation of the prayer, rejects the obligation of the prayer. The one who abandons the prayer because he rejects the obligation of the prayer is a Kafir, if he makes rejection of the obligation, is kafir. The second circumstance is the one who does not reject the obligation of the prayer, but he doesn't pray out of laziness, he doesn't pray. And he abandons the prayer out of laziness, not because he rejects the obligation, but out of laziness. Some, this is where the difference of opinion is. The first one, there is no difference of opinion. If you reject the prayer, you're a kafir. The issue is here. The one who abandons the prayer, out of laziness, is he a kafir or not? This is where the difference of opinion is. So some of the scholars, they say, even the one who abandons the prayer out of laziness, it is kufr. لِأَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَالَ الْأَحْدُ الَّذِي بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَهُمَ الصَّلَةِ فَمَنْ تَرَكَهَا فَقَدْ كَفَرْ وَفِي رِوَايَ فَقَدْ أَشْرَكْ That the covenant or the barrier, the difference between us and them, the disbelievers, is the prayer. So whoever leaves the prayer has committed kufr and in one version has committed shirk. Whoever leaves the prayer, does it say out of Laziness, no, no description. Whoever leaves the prayer, including the one who leaves it out of laziness. But other scholars, they say that the one who misses some prayers out of laziness, it does not get to the level of calling him a kafir because of, as one simple explanation, because of the ahadith of a shafa'ah on yawmul qiyamah. In some of them it says, Remove from the fire the one who has adana, 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 mithqala habba from iman. The one who has that lowest, 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 lowest level of iman is a person who barely even did any actions. So the scholars say that type of person would be in this scenario that he used to miss prayers, he barely even used to do that, but still on Yawmul Qiyamah. The ones with that iman, the minimum, are still removed as believers. So there's a difference on that. But what is absolutely agreed upon, without a shadow of a doubt, that the explanation of this topic is one. There is no such thing as, this topic isn't like the ones we've been discussing here. No. Is the ghusl wajib or is it mustahaban? This topic is not like this. This topic of missing the prayer and whether a person is a kafir or not, the way to think about it is if the scholars are discussing an issue as to whether it is kufr or not, 
They are talking about this issue, about this person, whether you are a kafir or not. Then certainly that person should fear his circumstance. You absolutely cannot miss the prayers. There is no excuse. The first thing that a person is asked about on the day of judgment is his prayer. The prayer. That is the absolute minimum. Nobody can miss the prayer. And it is not about are you kafir or are you not. Is somebody going to say, well, some scholars say you're not kafir, therefore it's okay. Then that person has certainly been deceived by the shaitan. That person has certainly been taken away by the shaitan. The one who says, well, some scholars say it's not kufr, so it's not a big deal. Shaitan has certainly overcome the mind of that person. This is a severe, severe and most dangerous of affair, the abandonment of the prayer. How could somebody possibly miss the prayer? The, the, the day of 24 hours, your prayer five times a day, a few minutes, five times a day. And a person cannot do that when it was initially obligated 50 prayers. And then Musa salam said, Inni jarrabtu qawmi qablak, that I experienced my people before you, and your people, لا يتحملون أو كما قال في الحديث that your people are not going to be able to burden 50 prayers a day then he said go back to Allah and ask for some takhfif so then Muhammad goes back and it becomes lessened by 10 in one narration and then Musa says no then he goes back to 10 more down then 10 more then down and down and down until it comes to 5 even when it comes to 5 the Prophet when he's coming back down the heavens in the hadith of al-Isra al-Mi'raj, Musa alayhi salam says, how much? He says, five. Musa alayhi salam says, takhfif, you have to go. But then the Prophet sallallahu said, I have gone so much istahit that I am now shy to ask for any further reduction. So he said, I am going to be happy with this. Five prayers, but the reward is like 50. Inna al-hasana bi-ashri amthaliha. So the prayer, the prayer, it cannot be abandoned. It cannot be left. And a person only looks at these kinds of topics from an ilmi point of view in some rulings and relation to the narrations. But as for the implementation, you know the salaf, when it came to minor shirk, certain things are minor shirk, certain things are major shirk. The salaf, when they used to talk about minor shirk, and if they had to give an evidence to somebody about the minor shirk, why it's minor shirk. In some examples, in Kitab al-Tawheed even, they gave evidences that are talking about major shirk, even though they were using them as an evidence for the minor shirk, which doesn't really add up. If you want to show somebody the proof that this action is an action of minor shirk, then use the evidence relevant to it being minor shirk. But they used to use evidences of major shirk. And that was to highlight to the person that this action of yours, do not belittle it thinking this is minor shirk only. Look at the evidence here, what he said about shirk in totality and the major shirk. And your action, look at it like that. Don't look at it, oh, but it's only minor shirk. So a person has to be very careful with those affairs, especially the Salafi Sunni. How can a Salafi Sunni the one who claims to be upon the following of the methodology of the Salaf. How could you possibly have deficiency in that field? In the field of prayer, in the field of ibadat, it's a mushkila. person has to strive in those affairs.
Anybody else? Yeah, those uh, types of ghusl, if you have a ghusl that is obligatory, then it covers the ghusl that is not obligatory. So on a Friday, if you make the ghusl for janabah, which is obligatory to be able to pray your fajr and then uh, also go to the Jumu'ah prayer, then that covers any other ghusl. The only issue here would be if you did that ghusl before fajr, then some of the scholars, they say it's got to be on the day of Friday, which would mean another one after Fajr. But if the scholars, some of them who say any time from the Fajr time entering is Friday, then your ghusl for Janaba would cover you for your ghusl for Jumu'ah. Oh, yeah, so that's in the narrations. You do not. It would be so. I think a Sheikh Al-Thameen has a fatwa similar to that, that the garlic and onions and those things, anything which is exactly equivalent to that, the illa is the same. Somebody who is upon extreme, like especially in the summer, for example, and you're a construction worker or something, and uh, you are uh, in a bad way with your sweat and as it is. So if you come into the masjid now, not only the person next to you either side, maybe five either side, then it's a mushkara. Then in that case, you would be in the same ruling. But of course, uh, this is back to what we just said now. A person doesn't allow that situation to arise. You know the prayer is at two o'clock. So khalas, you organize yourself and finish at 1.30 so you can go have a quick shower or do something or change or at least change your clothes and do something. You organize your time. You don't allow yourself to get into that situation. Because it's not befitting for a person to allow himself to get into the situation. And they say, Khalas, well, I'm excused, I'm exempt, and the ruling is there. Don't allow yourself to get into the situation where you're going to miss the jama'ah, you're going to miss the prayer. Yeah, the Prophet used to recite the Quran in all of his uh, circumstances. But even that one, uh, isn't there speech about the authenticity of this narration? I don't remember. I believe there is some speech about the authenticity of the narration and uh, uh, about whether that one is, uh, has an illa in it as well or not. But it's similar to what we spoke about here. Uh, only that one would indicate that it's permissible even when you're upon, naja uh, upon uh, the major impurity. But I believe, I believe, from what I remember, there's some speech about the authenticity. Allah mm. Alam. Mm. Yeah, if it has to be. In, in, in cases of necessity, then the scholars, they, they give you exemption when there is absolute necessity. The, the fatwa of Sheikh Baz about the surgeon, I think we mentioned last time, somebody's a surgeon brain surgeon or heart surgeon they have an operation from 11 a.m sometimes six seven hours finishes at 6 p.m these days now if his operation starts at 11 and finishes at 7 p.m definitely he's missed all of the time 
He started before and he finished after. He can't leave that person with his heart half in, half out of his body. There the scholars, they say, absolute necessity situation. The surgeon can carry on and then he combines or prays afterwards. If there's an absolute necessity, then you have no choice. But a person, again, avoids it to the best of his ability where you can't, as you said there, then you have no choice. The odd occasion. What if? Then you forget? And then what? Then you remember? Then you would never be asking the question. <laughs> no, no. If you completely forget it, then uh, of course on the day of judgment, then if you have deficiencies in your prayer in that same hadith, the first thing you're going to be asked about is your prayer. And then it mentions in the hadith about how Allah says to the angels, check his prayers, and if they are all complete, and if there's any deficiencies, they are fixed or made up, compensated by your nawafil prayers. So in that kind of extreme situation where a person completely forgot, and it may occur, then inshallah ta'ala you have those kinds of narrations where the nawafil, they, they fill in the gaps where it occurred like that completely. But again, you know, this all the issues are going back to the same thing a person only completely forgets that completely if your mind isn't making your prayers the focus of your day your focus is on other things and the prayer just fitting it in that's when you forget you wouldn't ever forget you know for example exams you're talking about nobody would ever forget I have an exam tomorrow at 2 o'clock you go to work every day you wouldn't just wake up one day and forget that you have to go to work, it's work today. You wouldn't forget those things. The prayer, a person shouldn't be forgetting it. It's only forgotten if it's a secondary thing in your mind. And the rest of your activities of the day are the primary focus in your mind. These questions are mushkila. When you start with, let's say, but go on. This is like in the books of fiqh, say, Law faradna. Go on. Hmm. The local masjid to you, or even at your workplace, the people who are leaving Jum'ah have got an aqeedah, which is, you know, they're from the like, Masufiyah, Bravia. Huh. You know, potentially they've got Shikiyah in the aqeedah. But if you were to go to a masjid, which is more closer to the Sunnah, it would take a long time to get there and back. What should you do in that situation? No, long time to get there and back and what? You can't do that because of your work hours? Yeah, basically. So it's impossible to get to the mosque. It's one of the two. If, if it's possible, with difficulty, but it's possible. Your 15-minute break, you add it onto your lunch hour, you do something, and you can manage it. Then in that circumstance, the, the answer is, of course, you do it then. You strive. It's one day a week for a few months of the year when the timings are like that. You strive then. If you can manage it, you can squeeze it, you put your 15-minute break on with your lunch and everything, then you do it. If you're telling me it's impossible to get to it, impossible, you cannot do it. Then your only option left is to pray with the Sufiya or whoever these people are and they are leading the prayer and you know that they are upon extreme deviance and misguidance. Then you can't pray behind them. You would have to find others that you can do your Jum'ah with separately and, and lead a Jum'ah in your workplace. You cannot pray behind them if you know that they are upon extreme misguidance in their beliefs. If they're commoners, awam, general people and they go to that mosque but they're not particularly clued up about anything. They're the normal kind of guys. They're there, they're career people. They're doing their job and they, they go and pray. 
then it may be okay to pray with them, give them da'wah, speak to them. They may not have as many deviated beliefs in reality as the imams and the real uh, uh, congregation of that place. So you judge those people. If he's an appointed imam uh, and he's been given that authority and position, then it, it would indicate that he is somebody of some level. He's not just a general person, an ammi. And if that's all of his uh, uh, communication is with and where he is with, where he's from, then it, it doesn't indicate a good thing. So you probably have to be careful. What time is prayer? Eight minutes? Oh, okay, go on. Hmm. Yeah, if you do the In that case, you have to do the ghusl. You do the ghusl and then you, you've missed the Jummah, you're going to have to pray for Dhuhr. That's an extreme circumstance, an extreme situation. You wouldn't get yourself into that kind of circumstance. Hmm. You have to listen to part of what your Jummah be valid? Not necessarily. Jummah can still be valid as long as you catch the prayer. Even if you catch the second raka'ah, as long as you catch one raka'ah, then your Jummah is valid. depends on the circumstance, where you are, who you're with, who the person is. That all goes back to the issues of al-amr al-ma'roof and nahi al-munkar. Whether it's permissible or, or possible to enjoin the good there and forbid the evil, depends on the circumstance, where you are, who the people are, who that person is. That all goes back to your judgment of whether you can enjoin the good there and forbid the evil or not. Because if the outcome is going to be worse than the current situation, imagine now you go to that person and you tell him, and he's a person who gets angry and he starts shouting and screaming, what are you talking about? There's no smell from me. And there's a huge thing that happens in the mosque. And he even starts to get physical. So now the outcome of you enjoying the good there has become even worse than you even speaking to him. Then in that case, it's not permissible to do it. What if the outcome is equal, equal to the current circumstance? Then Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Taymiyyah, they said, you judge, you judge. You make the judgment, should I go, should I not? Because if I go, more than likely he's going to respond in a certain way, which is almost as bad as what's happening right now anyway. So then you decide, should I go speak to him or should I not? And if the circumstances that you speaking to him will bring about a better uh, end result, then of course you enjoy the good and forbid the evil. It's permissible to do du'a without raising the hands, but raising the hands is one of the asbab al-istijaba. You raise your hands, it is one of the means for the du'a to be answered. One of the etiquettes of the du'a and one of the means for it to be answered. But du'a is possible and correct without raising the hands, but it's better with it. Hmm. Can you combine the prayer without it? No. Uh, 
إن الصلاة كانت على المؤمنين كتابا موقوتا that the prayers are in fixed times upon the believers prescribed in fixed times so you cannot combine without any reason that is again there's one narration about the prophets as I'm doing it one occasion but that is a blue moon incident maybe on the off occasion you end up combining without any real legitimate reason but as for some constant action regularly combining without reason it's not permissible at all prayers are in their times the timing the, from the shurut of the prayer the shurut of the prayer the most important the greatest of the conditions of the prayer is dukhul al-waqt from all of the conditions of the prayer that's why the scholars they say in the books of fiqh that example we gave imagine you're in uh, the forest you're camping in the forest and at night somebody comes some people they come and they rob you they take your tent, they take all your stuff, they even take all of your clothes, even the clothes you're wearing. They leave you in the middle of the forest naked. So now, this is night time, and now all of a sudden you look and you think, oh, it's Fajr. Now, 20 minutes left, Fajr is going to uh, uh, sunrise. And you're stood naked in the forest, they've robbed you, they've taken everything. So now, they've taken your car, everything. So you could walk back to your place, or to the nearest city or supermarket or whatever, but that's going to be after Fajr by the time you get out of the forest. So you're in the forest now. You can't get out anywhere to get clothes because one of the conditions of the prayer is to cover your awrah. You can't do that until after sunrise. The closest town, the closest place, the facilities, you can't get to them till after sunrise. So in this state, the fuqaha, they say you have to pray even as you are because the waqt, dukhul al-waqt, the most important time is the time uh, the uh, condition most important condition is the timing of the prayer most people in that circumstance would think that the covering of the aura is more important than the time but it's not the fuqaha they say the time is more important than the covering of the aura even and that's the same they say if somebody's in hospital in hospital broken bones everywhere you're lying down uh, and your bed is facing a particular way which is different to the direction of the qibla. Uh, your arms are, you know, you've seen the, how they do it and you guys, and you stick it on here and your arms and your legs and bandage everywhere. You can't even move your body. And your bed in your room is facing opposite to the qibla. So now how are you going to pray? You might think condition of the prayer, the shart, that you have to istiqbal al-qibla, you have to face the qibla, so I'm just going to have to wait until my relatives, they're going to come and visit uh, the visiting time, then I'll tell them to move my bed. But that's going to be after this particular prayer time exits. Then you don't wait for your relatives or the nurse or somebody to come and move your bed. If the time's going to go, pray even if you're not facing the qibla. Because the time is the most important condition over the other conditions. Maghibu shafaq, the, the disappearance of the twilight, which is the redness and the, the light which is left in the sky, the remnants of light after the sun has gone down. When that disappears and becomes black, then the Isha time has entered. So that's what's argued over. Technically, that is the, the, the shafaq still. According to, you know, technically that is that. Well, uh, red, white, I mean, it is the, the remnants of light after the sunset. 
Because the, the, the point of it is supposed to be that there is no light left, it is black, it's night. When there is no light left in the western hemisphere, in the western sky, it's all gone, pitch black. Now you can't even tell where the sun went down. All black, so Isha has entered. But if you can tell, you look and you see all the whiteness in that side and black on that side, you know that's where the sun went down. You can see the light still on the horizon. So then technically, that could be argued that it's still the, the uh, time of Maghrib. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashadu anna muhammadan rasulullah. Ashadu anna muhammadan rasulullah. Hay ala salah. Hay ala salah. Hay ala al-falah. Hay ala al-falah. Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. La ilaha illallah. That is very difficult. It's very difficult to work out the times for the Nasikh and Mansukh. But they don't really talk about that in this topic. 